We, uh, we started last week our series under construction uh, in our study of Colossians. I appreciate uh, Brian's intro last week. He gave us a lot of good uh, preparation for what we were going to be looking at in this book. It's funny, uh, as we study the scriptures, many times if you look at the book of Colossians, you see a lot of similarities with the book of Ephesians. Um, Paul was writing kind of to, in some ways, to sort of the same setting. Uh, and again, these churches were not that far apart. They were in what's modern-day Turkey. And so uh, we think about that. We think about how these churches were growing, the churches in the, the book of the Revelation. All of those churches were growing and doing a lot of things in a country that right now is an Islamic country um, with no churches hardly. Um, and so as Paul was beginning to prepare these people for what was coming, there's a lot of things that we need to understand and know. And it's not just so that we can go, well, we know that information because it was important for the people in Colossae, but because it's important for us. And so I want us to read this morning's uh, text, but then we're going to kind of veer off a little bit and come back to the text. And I do have a couple of questions for you this morning, but we're not going to record your answers. I'll just summarize your answers for the recording. How about that? Um, But in Colossians chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 15 through 20. If you don't have a a Bible with you, just kind of listen along. It's not going to be up on the screen. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, and the He here is Jesus, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, and making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's, let's pray again. Lord, as we open up your word, Lord, as we read this uh, six verses here, it's just like it's a mouthful, Lord, and a lot of things here that we could spend years trying to understand the depth of what Paul was saying. I pray that you will just guide our hearts this morning to understand and know the big picture, at least, of what he, he was trying to tell us about who you are. So we could understand and know what it means to, to follow after you. And, and we love you, and we just pray that you will speak to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, as we talked about last week, and, and the Colossians were dealing with a heresy, which is funny, we say, what does that mean? I mean, today you read all the time people on Facebook or whatever accusing each other of heresy, and you go, come on, just because you disagree with one another doesn't mean it's heresy. Um, but here, this was heresy. This was a teaching that was not necessarily trying to deny who Christ was as much as to take away the sting of who Christ was. They didn't come along and say Jesus was not the Messiah. They didn't even come along and argue that, that Jesus was uh, not a Savior. But the issue was He's a Savior plus. You've got to add all these things to a relationship with Him. And so... As we're thinking through that, I got uh, first question this morning. What is the difference between falling in line and falling in love? 
Just holler out. Don't or raise your hand if you want to. Everybody's not hollering at the same time, but right now that's really not an issue. <laughs> What's the difference? Okay. Okay. So the main difference being falling in line is doing something you are required to do. Falling is love is doing something that you want to do, you desire, you love to do. Anyone else? Falling in love is a commitment. Very good. Okay, legalism versus sacrifice. Anyone else? Okay. All right, so falling in line can be negative. Falling in love is great. Any more? Okay, so my second question. I can get it to move. All right. What are your first thoughts when someone says we're going to talk about theology? Here we go. What is that? Oh, no. Here we go again. Huh? Where's the exit? All right. What is theology? Okay, very good. <laughs> Red Bull. Okay. Why do we feel that way when we talk about theology? Let's just, I mean, beyond. Okay, we've been trained to think it's, it's all academic. It's all just understanding a bunch of big words. Okay. Theologians like to hear themselves talk. <laughs> In other words, okay. I was going to say because in, in theory, it should be something that, that would help us to, to learn in depth the, the Bible. Uh-huh. In practice, it just becomes more like this really complex uh, concept that really don't, are not applicable. Or mm. they should be applicable, but we don't make it applicable. Very good. And it should be something, theology should be something that helps us learn how to walk with Christ. But it becomes just a, a, an academic or a, a, let's throw out a big, bunch of big words and try to understand what this, Most of the time, it's someone who knows very little Greek trying to tell you what the Greek word means. Isn't that right? I mean, you know, everybody's got to throw out their big words. So we're going to talk about theology, so we throw out ecclesiology, missiology, soteriology, pneumatology, and everybody's going, get over yourself. You know, you like to hear yourself talk. But it's really not... If we really think about it, I remember when there was a big thing back in the 80s, I'll date myself, that was, you know, don't give me theology, just give me Jesus, you know? Well, you know what? You can't have one without the other. You can't have Jesus without theology. Now, you can have theology without Jesus. You can have a lot of big words and know all the answers and know the Greek and all of that kind of stuff without knowing Jesus, but to know Jesus, we've got to understand and know theology. 
So let's go back to what Brian said last week. What did he talk about there in, in Colossians chapter 1? That there's, there's a few little uh, steps here. One is that, that Paul prays that they will have knowledge, doesn't he? He doesn't pray that we'll have Jesus without some sort of understanding and knowledge. He wants us to have knowledge, but not to stop there. That knowledge should develop into understanding. That we have it up here in our heads, but we begin to understand exactly what that means. Remember, the analogy was the football player who who knows the, the play. He can read it. He tells you all about it. Then there's a point where he goes, oh... That makes sense. It's not just that I know who's supposed to be where, when, and how. I know why they're supposed to be where, when, and how. But then there comes the point where he's got to get out and actually do it. He's got to put it to practice in his life. And that's what Paul's saying. I want you to be filled with all knowledge so that you'll have understanding and you'll be able to live this out. Why? So that, you know, he, he, he talks about here that, that the idea is so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to Him. So we're going back to the purpose for all of this. But how do we do that? Is it just a matter of sitting down and studying a book and understanding all the big words and all the Greek and knowing all the theology from that end of things? No, it's not. It's understanding those truths so that we can have a deeper walk with Christ. We can understand what He has accomplished for us. Theology in and of itself is not a bad thing. The way some people handle it, it is a boring thing. You know, I hate to say it that way, but I know a lot of guys who who are theologians who are boring. But the point is here, he says, we can understand it. How do we understand it? Well, he says, Christ has qualified us to understand it. Christ has transferred us into the the, um, kingdom of his beloved son. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and then Paul gets into this passage we're looking at today, which is some pretty deep theology. In these few verses, he's talking about some deep stuff. So what does he say? He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, I've heard people use the illustration of you hold up a coin, you say, okay, who is this on the front of this? Who is the front of this penny? Who's, who is this on there? Try to tell me who's on a penny. Anybody know? I was going to, I'd go higher, but most of us may not know. Abraham Lincoln. Is Abraham Lincoln really on that penny? No, he's not. The image of Abraham Lincoln is on that penny. Now, that analogy falls short, though. Because the, the implication is Jesus was an image, but not really God. That's not what that, that Paul's saying there. By Paul saying he's the image of the invisible God, he's saying he was God in the flesh. When he came and lived on this earth, he lived as God. When you looked at him, you saw God. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, Peter said, or Thomas, one of them said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't have to know anything else. You just need to know who I am. He was the image of the invisible God. Some deep theology there. Well, he goes on to say he's the firstborn of creation. Now, how many of you here are firstborn in your family? You can raise your hand, Ethan. There you go. Uh, now, what does that mean? Doesn't really mean a whole lot in today's world, does it? it? Means you were probably the one who had to babysit your little siblings. 
You know, you're the one who was always expected to have the right answer no matter what. You were always expected to be more mature than everybody else, even though you were six. You know? I mean, I, <laughs> that's the way it was, right? And it's not, when he talks about the firstborn of creation, he's not talking about Jesus was born first, like we talk about firstborn here. He's talking about firstborn as in prominence. He has the prominence over all creation. He's not just first in time, because time doesn't relate to Jesus. But he's firstborn as far as his, his prominence over creation. He is the one who created all, which he goes on to say. He's the creator of the universe. All things came into being by Christ. Not by Jesus the man, but by Christ. You say, well, what's the difference there? Well, that'd be some more theology we'll get into later. But the issue here is Christ created everything. You say, I thought God created everything. Well, we just said Christ is God. Yes, He created all that there is to exist. All the universe, all the things that we don't understand and know about. Paul is saying the Son, the beloved Son in Him, whom redemption has come and forgiveness of sins, He was the creator of the universe. It says He's the head of the church. You know, we have all the time in our churches... We look at the church, and what's the first question most people ask about your church, other than what, how many people are coming, is who's your pastor? Now, there's nothing wrong with that question. There's nothing wrong with being a pastor of the church. The thing that becomes wrong is when you think because you're the pastor, you are it. Or when your people think because you're the pastor, you are it. Because believe it or not, There's never been a pastor in all of eternity past who the minute after he died and they buried him that the church didn't find another pastor. You know, there's not a church around that goes, well, pastor died. Just close the doors and move on. If it was that way, then it wasn't a church. It was a cult following after that guy. But because the pastor is not the head, Christ is the head of the church. We went through our Discover City Church yesterday with a few new members who we'll introduce you to later on. But one of our things says that we believe that the leader of the church is Christ. Then we're elder-led, but Christ is the leader of the church. And every church will tell you that. But you've got to look at how does it practically work itself out. Is that really true, or do we really make our decisions based on who Christ is? So Christ is the head of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now this actually has both ideas here. He was the first one to rise from the dead. You say, no, Wade, that's not true. Lazarus rose from the dead before Jesus did. So how was Jesus first? What else happened to Lazarus a little bit later in his life? He died again. Lazarus was raised just to, to hang out here for a little bit longer. Then he died again. Jesus is the actual firstborn from the dead, never to die again. But he's also that firstborn in preeminence and, and prominence where he says, because he is the one who rose again, we can live new life. 
Paul says that in Romans chapter 6. That it's because of his resurrection that we can walk in newness of life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ just died, and that was all there was to it, he died and was buried, and that was the end, then we are all stupid. I mean, let's think about it. If Christ died and was buried and that was the end, why on earth are we coming together to drag out chairs and drag out equipment and hang out together on a Sunday morning we could be staying at home and asleep or watching TV or something? Why come together? Why do friends of mine worldwide get arrested and take stand? Why do that? You're stupid if Christ is still dead. But because Christ rose from the dead... That's why we do what we're called to do. He's the firstborn from the dead. He has come back to life. Then he says, he is the fullness of God. Now, if we don't understand this theology, and again, it's one of those things that we we talk about a lot, but it wasn't that when Christ came, people will talk about this from Philippians chapter 2, that when Jesus came to earth as a man, he set aside being God, and became a man. That is not what Philippians 2 teaches. Philippians 2 teaches that he set aside some of the privileges of Godhood to become a man, but he added being a man onto being God. He was both at the same time. The fullness of God was on him in bodily form, Paul says in another passage. So Christ, this, this son, this beloved son that Paul is talking about, remember, the heresy was not to get rid of Jesus as a whole, but to say he's not king. And Paul's saying, I want you to have knowledge, I want you to have understanding, to live a certain way, because you've been grafted into his beloved son, and therefore you have unbelievable power because you are part of Christ. Christ is in you, and this is who Christ is. All these things, he's the image of God, the firstborn of creation, the creator of the universe, the head of the church, firstborn from the dead, the fullness of God, the reconciler of all things. Now, I'm not going to get into the politics today. But we have people on one end of the spectrum who want to save every animal that's ever come around, and trees and all of that, and other people who say, ah, they're just animals, they're just trees, let's move on and do our own thing. But the Scripture seems to indicate in Ephesians chapter 1 especially that Christ is going to pull all that back together in a glorious creation. He's that reconciler. He's the one who makes sense of things for us. We look at the world and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that a hurricane would, would wipe out a section of the United States or a typhoon would wipe out Indonesia or whatever. You know, we don't, these things don't make sense to us. But he is the reconciler. He's the one that we can trust and lean on. You say, well, Wade, so what? What's the big deal on all of this? If, if this, these people were trying to dethrone Christ, they can't dethrone him, so what's the big deal? Well, if they can convince you that he's not who he says he is, then it is a big deal. You no longer live the way you're called to live. That's why it's important for us to know theology. Because it's important for us to know when someone's teaching us that something is wrong. And it's dragging us away. But Paul says here, the reason for all of this is 
in verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, there's some version that say that in everything Christ may have first place. Now, is there a difference between preeminence and first place? And let me just, let me think about, you know, I used to ask teenagers all the time. And it's one of those setup questions. Does Jesus want to be first in your life? Oh, yeah. I'd say, no, he doesn't. He wants to be your life. He doesn't want to be first in your life. You say, Wade, what's the difference? Judy, come here a minute. She didn't know she was going to have to come here this morning. My family's learned over the years, anything is possible. Okay. Now I'm going to ask Judy a question. And hopefully she's going to answer the way I think she's going to answer. <laughs> if she doesn't, then we'll start all over again. And we'll... Do you want to be first in a long line of other women in my life? Okay, there we go. See, the Jesus first mentality is a falling in line. The Jesus first mentality says, I'll put Jesus first, which means I'm going to do what he wants me to do, and, and I'm going to do all my best to try to live up to that, and I'm going to follow these rules. And, uh, you know, there's going to be times when maybe he won't be first, but, uh, you, know, there's, you know, there's other things floating around down here, but he's there. I mean, yeah, it gets real confusing, doesn't it? But if Christ is preeminent... That's falling in love. Judy doesn't want to be first in my life. She wants to be preeminent in my life. And so the translation there when it says for Christ to be first of all is really a bad translation. Because preeminence is not first in a line of other things. Preeminence is overall. He is it. He is the one that we serve. He is the one that we understand and we know and we follow. He is the one that we have been delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into his kingdom. He's the beloved son. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the creator of all things, the reconciler of all things. He's the one who lives in us and we live in him. Now, Paul did something here in Colossians that Jesus never did. That sounds heretical already, Wade. Where are you going with this? What is Paul doing here in this passage? He's focusing on we need to follow Christ and make him preeminent because of who he is, because he's God in the flesh, the creator of all things, the reconciler of all things, the firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead. We make him first in all things. We, we make him preeminent in all things because of who he is. But Jesus never, you can read the Gospels, you can go back and challenge me if you want, but nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus say, follow me because I'm God. Doesn't say it. Andy Stanley says it this way, I like the way he says it. Jesus never played the God card. What did Jesus say? He challenged the disciples to love. He didn't challenge them to fall in line because he was God. 
He didn't come wielding his authority. Oh, there were times when they saw his power. There were times when they, they were beginning to recognize there was something different about him. But he never told them he was God other than if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. But even in that, he doesn't say, follow me because of that. Jesus doesn't want us falling in line, trying to live up to a list of do's and don'ts. He wants us to, to fall in love with him, for him to be preeminent in, who, in, in our lives. What did he say to the disciples in John chapter 13? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Love as I have loved you. And if you love one another that way, all people will know that you are my disciples. What do we say today? All people will know you're my disciple if you vote Republican. All people will know you're my disciple if you post little quotes and quips on Facebook. All people will know you're my disciple if you dress a certain way or look a certain way. Jesus says, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Is that easy? No. We all know people who are hard to love. Think about the disciples. Jesus says, love as I have loved you. He said this not long before, not, I'm not, not long before Judas left to go betray him. Not long before everybody else in that room ran away and left him by himself. Not long before his, one of his best friends said, I don't have any idea of what you're talking about. I never know that guy. I never knew him. I wasn't hanging out with him. I'll call down curses upon myself that I've dropped dead right here if you say I knew him. Hard to love? Yeah, these guys were hard to love. You think they were hard to love each other? Think about John, the beloved disciple, the one that he says all the time, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Now that sounds cocky, but it was really more, I can't believe I'm the one he loved. The one close to Jesus, close enough to Jesus that he was laying on his chest during the Lord's Supper, who stands and watches his good friend deny he ever even knew Christ. How would you respond? I'd be going, Peter, you're done, man. You and I aren't hanging out together anymore. See you later. How did Jesus respond? Peter, come here, man. Let's talk. Do you love me? Yeah, I do. Then, then feed my sheep. Do, do you truly love me more than these? Yeah, I do. Then, then tend my lambs. He gives him a chance that the rest of us would go, man, you blew it. You're toast. Can't come around here anymore. But because of that love, 11 men who 
a few weeks earlier were petrified and hiding in a room so that people wouldn't arrest them, stand up in the midst of a crowd and proclaim Christ. Because he changed their lives. And because people began to see their love for one another. You know where most of the hospitals in the world have come from? Believers. You know, in the first century, if you were born a female, it was legal to take you and sit you out on the stoop and just wait to see what happens. If you lived, hey, the fates, hey, they... They've shined on this, this girl. Other than that, you know, if you got eaten by the animals, oh well. If you froze to death, oh well. You weren't important. You know who stopped that? The Christians who would come along and pick the babies up off the stoop and take them into their home. They couldn't afford them because they already had children, but they took them into their home and loved on them. Who are the people who, when people had leprosy, would take the chance of getting leprosy to love on these people and to, to build and hospitals to take care of them? The believers, the missionaries. Are we showing that kind of love? Are we going to be a church that shows that kind of love that says, that person with AIDS, I'm going to sit and hold their hand. And love on them and wipe their brow and do what I can to help them. That Muslim, I'm going to love him. That undocumented Mexican that lives down the street, I'm going to love him. Those are hard questions. It's easy to love somebody who's nice to us. It's easy to pretend to love each other here on Sunday mornings. But is it easy to love when people do things that we think, man, why did you do that? Why are you living that way? Why are you allowing that to control you? The world's going to know we're Christ's disciples when we have love for one another. Paul said it in another place. He said, for through the Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. That's the towing the line. But only faith working through love. Only faith working through love. See, we're not going to win people to Christ by strong theological arguments. We can have theological arguments all day long. Generally speaking, we're not going to win people to Christ by good apologetics. That we can prove to them that creation's true and, and the universe is a certain way. And people may agree with us and they get walk away. It's not going to be because we toe the line or we fall in line. It's because we love one another. What did Jesus say the greatest commandments were? That's not a rhetorical question. To love God and to love each other. He didn't say the two greatest commandments are, and he went back and tried to figure out which of the ten were the two best ones. No, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, when he said that, 
you know what they thought? The people who heard that still loved the other Jews. Think, remember the lawyer who came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Actually, he asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, what do you say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said, you've said well, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the guy wanting to justify himself said, who's my neighbor? And Jesus began to tell a story that we don't get the grasp of because we don't understand the difference between Jews and Samaritans. But he tells a story that we know as the Good Samaritan story. So he tells about a man who's going down the street. He gets beaten up by robbers. He's left on the side of the road for dead. And a Pharisee or a a teacher of the law is coming by. And he walks right by him. Then another scribe's coming by and he walks right by him. And then he gets to the gist of the story. Then there was a Samaritan. Now you know what that Jewish lawyer's thinking? That Samaritan's just going to come finish this guy off. Because those Samaritans are dogs. And he's going to come get whatever money's left. He's going to slice this guy's throat and move on. And Jesus says he picked the guy up, put him on his donkey, and took him to an inn. Took care of his wounds. And the next day, he didn't just drop him off at the end. He stayed there with him. Jews don't do that. I mean, Samaritans wouldn't do that for a Jew. A Jew wouldn't do that for a Samaritan. But the Samaritan stayed. And the next day told the innkeeper, hey, here's some money to take care of his needs. If he needs anything else, I'll be back by here. Just basically keep a tab for me and I'll take care of it. And we hear that and we go, oh, yeah, I've heard that story. Isn't that sweet? For a Jew, that was nuts. It would have been like in the 1960s in Birmingham, Alabama, to say that a white guy was beaten up on the side of the road and left for dead. Pastor walked by him, didn't do anything. Politician walked by him, didn't do anything. But a black guy came along, picked him up, put him on his put him in his car, took him to the hospital, took care of his needs. Said, add him to my bill. Or let's go today. An American's beaten up and left on the side of the road. Pastor walks by him, politician walks by him, but a Muslim comes and picks him up. Takes care of his wounds. Next day says, add him to my tab. That's scandalous to us to think about. But Jesus used that illustration to say, this is what it's all about. Not just loving your fellow Jews, but loving each other no matter what. That's what happens in all the book of Acts. It's over and over again, Jesus is trying to show them, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, all of these people are included. How many of you are here thankful that Jesus included the Gentiles? need to raise your hand. We all, we all, unless any of you here are Jews or, some, or Samaritans, you need to be thankful that God included the Gentiles. And so we need to love one another. So my question this morning is, if I can... Or you will never be able to fall in line. But what's keeping you from falling in love? You're never going to measure up. 
None of us do. But all of us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Son, the beloved Son who lives in us, who is the fullness of God, the image of God, the creator of the universe, the restorer of all things, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, lives inside of us. Therefore, we can love just as He loved. It is possible to do. And that's what we're called to do. Not toe a line, not fall in line, but fall in love. Let's pray.